Our scripture reading this morning is a very familiar one. It is Psalms 23. And this is very near and dear to my heart. I memorized this passage when I was 10 or 11 years old, and God prepared me because at age 12 I had open-heart surgery. And this was on my heart. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God and Father, we turn once more here to your word. Pray that you would be with all of us, though we are sinful people. As we sit under its authority, that you would speak and minister to us. With me, though I am a sinful and unworthy vessel you might speak through me. May the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O God. So one of the things that happens when you're a pastor a lot is that people ask what they're supposed to call you. That even happened to me yesterday. I was doing a a wedding, right? Reverend, minister, father. You get called a lot of different things. Sometimes also less kind things, but that's another sermon. But whenever people ask what they're supposed to call me. My first answer is always Eric, because it seems kind of strange to me in general to have titles, but people seem to like having some title beyond just using my name. And so here's how I usually then answer. I mean, first of all, father is actually fine biblically, right? You know, Paul pictures himself as a spiritual father of the churches that he ministers to, but in our culture, it's mostly just Catholic and Orthodox Christians that use that language, and so it's just kind of confusing to people, like when, you know, I'm Father Eric, but then they find out that I'm married, and they're like, wait a minute, I didn't know that that worked that way. Reverend, I have always hated, <laughs> to be told. I mean, it means revered one or honored one, and I feel like I know people who go into ministry seeking to be revered and honored, and those people are bad ministers of Christ, to be honest. Like, you know, I mean, this isn't about you getting glory to your name and you getting honor for yourself. Minister is actually fine. It sounds a little stuffy, I think, to most people in our day, but a minister is just someone who cares for somebody, and that that sounds great. I mean, absolutely. uh, You know, I mean, a central part of what it means to be a leader in Jesus' church is to care for people. But I always ultimately prefer pastor. Pastor, because it is from the Latin shepherd. That's what the word means. Pastor in Latin is shepherd. And the, the shepherd is throughout scripture an image for what it means to be a leader in the people of God. In John 21, when John, or when Jesus is referring, or is restoring Peter, after Peter has denied him three times, he says, to Peter to feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, as an explanation of his calling. When Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders before he goes to Jerusalem and knows that he's going to be imprisoned and sent to Rome, he tells them to keep watch 
over yourselves and the entire flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And because of what Jesus said to him when he was restored, it's no surprise then that Peter tells the leaders of the church to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So why do I like that image of shepherd? Well, first of all, I like it because I think, unlike reverend especially, it conveys the appropriate posture of humility that leaders within the people of God should take. That shepherds in their society were the least and the lowliest members of society. Anyone who has heard a Christmas sermon about the shepherds hearing the good news of Jesus has probably heard those facts. They weren't even allowed to testify in court because they were seen as shady characters. They tended to be very poor. They lived and slept among animals. And so they were looked down on societally. They were humble in terms of other people. Um, And I think it conveys a right humility towards God. While there were exceptions to this, usually a shepherd was not the person who owned the sheep that they were caring for. If you owned, you know, a thousand sheep, you were really rich in the ancient world. Um, You would hire a shepherd, and that would be the person that would actually have to go stay out in the fields with the sheep. And in the same way, you just recognize as a pastor that the church belongs to God and that you are only a steward, right? A hired hand taking care of his flock. So I like that humility. I also like the image of a shepherd because it conveys the appropriate mix of tenderness and fierceness that I think should characterize people who lead, um, who lead the church. I mean, in the first place, like shepherds were strong, you know, kind of fierce guys in many ways. They lived out in the wilds in an era in which bandits and lions and bears were real dangers. In fact, King David, when he's getting ready to fight Goliath, and Saul is like, how can you, this, you know, young boy, fight this giant of a warrior? He's like, well, I was a shepherd, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, of course I'm ready to go do battle against him. He sees that as good preparation. There is a, an appropriate fierceness and courage that's needed for ministry, but at the same time, it is an image of tenderness. The shepherd would feed the sheep and would carry them when they were wounded and would bind up their wounds and, like I said a minute ago, would, would sleep in their midst and, um, and almost live as one of them. And I think that that mix of courage and compassion, of tenderness and fierceness, should characterize all Christians, especially those who lead the church. But most of all, I like pastor, shepherd, because that is an image that Jesus often uses for himself. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, throughout the parables and other teachings of the gospel, pictures himself and God through him is shepherding his people. And when Peter calls us to shepherd the flock of God, those of us that lead the church, he says this immediately after. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I love that. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Or to translate that and use that modern term, Jesus is the head pastor of the church. All of us are under shepherds, we're told elsewhere in scripture. All of us that work in gospel ministry are assistant pastors under the headship and shepherding care of Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is just spend a few minutes in my last sermon here reflecting on Psalm 23 and that shepherding love of God that shepherding love of Jesus that he exercises as our chief shepherd. When I look at Psalm 23, I think there's really three things that it tells us about that love of God. First, it tells us that God feeds us, that God feeds us and provides for us. 
So, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Just a note, if I accidentally mess up the words, I have a different translation of this memorized from when I was a kid, Nancy. And so, <laughs> but, um, but that's an image, of course, of God's provision, first of all. That he leads his sheep to um, green pastures where they can eat. He leads them to still waters where they can drink safely. And, and more than just that, it's a sort of provision that entails a, a sort of searching care. When it says he restores my soul, that word restore means to cause to return. It's actually probably meant to be an image of the shepherd seeking after sheep when they stray and bringing them back to the green pastures and back beside the still waters. It might be what Jesus has in mind when he talks about um, the shepherd that leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one lost lamb. So he provides in all those ways. And how does he do that? Well, then David says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So paths of righteousness is interesting in that it could either mean um, a right path, as in a good path, right? You know, a nice path to walk on, or it could mean a path of moral righteousness, a path that is walking in God's righteousness. And it's striking because, of course, I think on some level it's meant to be both in this psalm. If you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about God's goodness, we said that when we speak of God's goodness, we're talking both about the fact that God does good for us and provides for us good things, and the fact that God calls us to seek after his goodness and walk in it, because those are actually the same thing. And in the same way here, the path that is right, that is good, the path of blessing and life, is the path of seeking after God's righteousness and knowing and following after him. We often confuse that right path. We often confuse the green pastures and still waters with just God giving us what we want. <laughs> that we think that that means that God's going to feed us with the worldly things that we want. But those right paths remind us that in truth, God provides for us, but what he provides is what is truly good. God often doesn't give me what I want, which is a good thing, because in truth, if I had everything that I wanted, it would destroy myself, right? We all, we're, we're a little more sophisticated, but really, like, I watch my kids in food, right? And they would eat ice cream for every meal. <laughs> like, if, if, they, if they were able to eat what they wanted, um, they would end up vomiting after a day of it, and they would die after, like, two weeks, because, the, you know, because what they're desiring is not what's truly good. So, when we talk about God's provision, God feeding us, it's not that he's going to give us ice cream for every meal. But it is that he will give us what is truly good. And when we seek destructive desires, he will restore our soul and draw us back from those desires. Coming out of that, maybe if I could actually just suggest one of the keys, I think, to living under God's shepherding love, to having a healthy kind of spiritual life, is actually just in that recognition that God is giving us what is truly good. And often our problem is just that we don't desire it. We don't actually desire those green pastures and those still waters. So what needs to happen is we have to cultivate an appetite for those right paths. We have to cultivate an appetite for what is truly good. I mean, if I could extend the food analogy a little bit, in many ways, a big part of Christian growth is the same thing as us learning how to eat a healthy diet right? That, that as a young person, I was 
more than happy to just eat Hot Pockets and drink Mountain Dew all the time. And that was, that was great. That seemed like, you know, a, a good diet. And I got away with that until I was like 30. But, um, but, but then as you get older, you recognize that you can't live that way. And so what you have to do is you have to actually not just change how you eat, but over time learn to actually desire better things. You have to actually learn to like what is truly good. And so as I've done that over the years, I mean, look, I still kind of like Hot Pockets, and I totally got one. I got one of those Fourth of July Mountain Dews because I wanted to, to see what they were. Man, it's sweet. But anyway, <laughs> but I'm not fully sanctified. But um, I've also learned, right, if I go for a day and don't have, like, fruits and vegetables, now I actually, like, crave those things. I'm like, oh, I feel wrong that I haven't eaten that. I've actually learned to have my desires change. A big part of spiritual growth is actually having that same thing happen to our hearts with the ways of God. That it is easy for us as Christians just to focus on our actions, just to, you know, do this, don't do that. But a big part of true growth is having those heart desires begin to change and seeking to savor the goodness of God's ways so that then we come to desire them and seek after them. It's what scripture means when Peter talks about craving life-giving spiritual food, I think. That that the root thing isn't just that we eat the life-giving spiritual food, but that we crave it. So one of the keys to walking in those right paths is recognizing that the green pastures and waters that God is leading us to are truly good. And that our desires are actually the destructive things that are leading us away from them. But that's the first promise. While we have to learn to cultivate an appetite for it, God feeds us with what is truly good in his shepherding love. Joined to that in the psalm is the promise that God protects us. That God, our shepherd, will protect us in the darkness of the world. But you have to, before we even read the verse, I just have to make this distinction. Because what's happened so often, and I think leads to so much confusion, is that we confuse the idea of God protecting us with the idea of God sheltering us. Which is to say, the idea that God will somehow just not let us experience hard stuff in life. We often think that that's what divine protection means. And it's clearly not biblically, or for anyone who's lived very long in the world, what it means that God protects us. And, I mean, that distinction, like, I even get that with my children, right? Like, I as a parent am absolutely called to protect my children, um, to keep them safe, to keep them from being harmed. But if I as a parent try to shelter my children... I will actually do damage to them, right? A big part of parenting is letting your children walk through hard and sometimes painful things in a way that protects them and shepherds them through it. And so when we say God protects us, that's what we mean. And I can show that to you here in the psalm. Because read again the end of verse 3. It says, God leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I think we put this hard break in our minds, but there's not really a break there. Verse 4, he leads me in paths of righteousness even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That valley of the shadow of death could also be translated a valley of deep darkness, but it's just a way of talking about those dark, painful parts of life. And apparently, a part of God leading us on right paths involves those brutal stretches. That those two things aren't in contrast to each other, that a part of God leading us in paths of righteousness involves the valley of of the shadow of death. That he's not somehow not with us, not leading us even there. Our suffering and our pain and our grief and our mortality are not the opposite of God leading us. They're part of the journey. 
So we do move through that valley of the shadow of death, but like we said, God protects us. How does he do that? How does he protect us? Well, first, we're promised that he is with us. And really, that's just a remarkable, right? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. When we're suffering, it's so easy for us to slip into that place of saying, where are you, God? Where are you? That sense of divine abandonment. And that's biblical. The psalmist sometimes asks God that very question. But of course, the answer is always, I'm here. I'm right here with you. And even beyond what we're going to say in just a minute about how God um, works in that, I mean, that in itself is a comfort, right? That the Lord of the universe is immediately, intensely present with us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he knows our tears in the midst of us. And he is with us and grieving with us and standing as a strong support for us. So God is with us, and we're told his rod and his staff will be a comfort for us. So the rod is basically uh, a club, a weapon. Um, Shepherds were poor, so they wouldn't have like swords or something. But I mean, yeah, the rod is like a fancy sounding word in this instance for a club that they would carry around on their belts to beat up things that would try to hurt the sheep. And then the staff was, of course, the shepherd's walking stick that he would walk with. But it was also what he would use to kind of herd the sheep themselves, sometimes just by waving it in the air. I I actually, so I spent a summer herding cattle, and I could never do this, but, you know, the farmers that were, like, actually good at it, they'd just, like, wave like a stick, and the cows would turn and do whatever they wanted them to do. And also, if a a sheep kind of was going off in the wrong direction, they'd take the staff, and they'd pull them back into line. So God's rod and his staff are both ways that he fights for us. First, in terms of his rod, that image is of God fighting and protecting us from external enemies. That when we face the the dark forces in this world, the brokenness of this world, other human beings that try to work us harm, that God fights for us. God fights for you. And in fact, it's just just worth stressing that, I think. Because that that statement is something in our culture, because we tend to focus on the kind of gentle, nice parts of God that we don't say enough, but that's so important if you're in the middle of hard suffering in life. That God fights for you, that he has gone to war against the powers of darkness generally in the world. That's, that's what the story of Jesus is about, right? That Jesus, Jesus comes into this broken world as God, and he's crucified, we're told, so that he could disarm the powers and authorities of this age and put them to open shame. That in his cross he did that, and in his resurrection he triumphed over them, and in his return he will ultimately destroy them. God has gone to war against the dark powers of this age in general, and specifically, he fights for us as we go through those hard places. Now, that doesn't always mean that we're going to immediately be delivered from them. Sometimes what it means when God is fighting for us is simply that he's fighting so that we can endure and survive until tomorrow. Sometimes we won't see the full justice and restoration until he returns. But God stands with you and fights for you as you go through those hard places in life. God's rod is a comfort. And then God also protects us with his staff, which, remember, is what the shepherd uses on the sheep themselves when they wander, which is to say that God protects us from the evil out there in the world, but God also is fighting to protect us from the evil that exists within us. That he helps us fight against our own sin, that he pursues us when we stray and draws us back to himself, 
that at times he corrects us. And all of that is actually how God is shepherding us and in a sense being a comfort to us even, um, even when it's us who are at times feeling the consequences of that. I am often forced to recognize when I am honest that my greatest enemy in this thing is myself. It's sort of easy to think about those dark powers out there, those things out in the world that might be causing me harm because I can feel good about myself in them. But when I am honest, I recognize that there is a part of me that also has done harm and failed to do good. There's a part of me that's hurt other people. And there's a part of me often that's responsible for some of the pain that I'm feeling. And part of the promise of this psalm is that God doesn't just go fight against those things that aren't my fault. He doesn't just protect me from the stuff out there in the world that's out to get me, but he's actually fighting for me and protecting me even against my own sin. David sounds that theme twice in this psalm. First, right when God restores our soul, when we stray, he seeks and draws us back, and then that image of the staff comforting us. We don't know when this psalm was written in David's life, but I like to think that he wrote it near the end of his life, Or at least I like to imagine him singing it to himself near the end of his life. Reflecting on all of those real failures that were a part of his reign. On Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah and his many failures as a parent. And the census he took that shows a lack of trust in God. David sinned as a king in many ways and faced real consequences. But I think one of the things that he rejoices in is that God always brought him to repentance and restored relationship. That God faithfully not only protected him from like, you know, Goliath and the Philistines and stuff, but God as part of his protecting, shepherding love brought David over and over again to a place of repentance and grief for his sin and then restored relationship. And that is the offer that we're given when we talk about God fighting for us. Not just that God will fight for us against the world, but that he offers us Repentance, the opportunity to come and own our sin and experience that same restored relationship. That God is chasing after you and inviting you to return and to be fed and to be welcomed by him. He shepherds us with his protecting love. And then one last promise of the psalm, which is that God blesses us. God blesses us beyond anything we could ask or hope. So verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So the, the imagery here shifts. David's not really talking about shepherds and sheep anymore because you don't like set a feast for sheep, right, at a table. Um, instead, it shifts to the image of a host. And it's first a host that has prepared this rich feast that he's inviting us to come eat at. It's probably a victory feast. That's the, in, my enemy, in the presence of my enemies. In the ancient world, what was common, um, if you had a great war, right, like against those powers of darkness that, that God just protected us from, when they're defeated, then you would often have the kind of leaders of that army be prisoners, like in cages, and you would sit down and have a feast in front of them, which was kind of a like, hi, you know, check this out thing, but is the image of the feast that God throws. So he's this host that throws us this victory feast, and he anoints our head with oil. That was a sign of hospitality and honor in the ancient world. In fact, if you remember in Luke 7, as we've been preaching through Luke before we took a break for this series, um, that's what Jesus faults the Pharisee for not doing. 
And basically, it was a way, if you were welcoming someone into your house, of showing them honor. Kings were anointed with oil, and so you would say sort of, it was a way of saying, in this house, you're going to be treated like royalty. So he anoints our head with oil, and our cup overflows. So it's a victory feast where we're honored, and it is a party, right? (laughs) There's so much wine that the cups are overflowing with it. That's all signs of God's abundant love toward us. That's the posture that he takes towards us. That he isn't, you know, he's not just our shepherd giving us grass, but the imagery shifts so that he is our host, who is not just doing the bare minimum that we need to survive, but that he is going above and beyond in abundantly showering blessings down on our heads. And then it's even more than that. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, I want to suggest something that is not certain from the text. But if verse 5 is picturing a victory feast, then I think verse 6 almost moves that imagery to be speaking of a wedding feast. It's this great banquet, um, but then there's this lifelong relationship of love and mercy and an invitation to come and dwell in God's house with him. And I think that in part because in the book of Revelation, John uses that same imagery from Psalm 23. So first he uses the image of this feast to talk about the wedding supper of the Lamb. So in Revelation 19, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it pictures Jesus's return to dwell with his people as this rich wedding feast that he's throwing just after he's defeated his enemies. And then in Revelation 21, another description of Jesus's return. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Which is another way of saying that you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God in Scripture doesn't just feed us at a distance— But repeatedly in the Bible, the imagery is actually that God marries himself to us as this image of the closest sort of human intimacy and commitment that we could possibly get. God gives himself to us, and so goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life, and so we will dwell with him forever. And that's a way of stressing what the psalm stresses at its climax, which is the point of all of this isn't the green grass, and it isn't the rich table, and it isn't the overflowing cups. The point of this is God himself. It starts and ends with the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, and I will dwell in his house forever. That the ultimate way that God fulfills all of the promises of this psalm is by offering us himself. It's what we are fed God nourishes our souls by giving us himself. It's how we are protected, right? I will fear no evil because you are with me. And it's the blessing that we ultimately find. That what we're ultimately longing for is God's goodness and mercy following us and dwelling in his house forever. If I can just speak personally about that. Um... This whole season that I've been here, especially this last year, as many of you know, has been a hard one (laughs) in a lot of ways. A season of discouragement, of attacks by the enemy, of uncertainty and deep tiredness 
And in the midst of all of that, not in a way that removes the hardness of that, but in the midst of all of that, I have continued to find the goodness and rich sustaining power of experiencing God's presence and of having him provide himself to me in a way that is enough. And I struggled with how to even name this in this sermon because um, I am at root kind of an analytic person and this is describing an emotional, experiential thing. But what I always think about was um, Elizabeth, as she walked through cancer, would often, she would say that one of the things she used to be afraid of before she walked through significant suffering was this struggle of just going like, is God enough? Like, you know, I, I, I say that he's enough, that, you know, we sing songs about that, but is that really true and several times over the course of that even near the end what she would comment to me with this great smile is just like god is enough like i have found that to be true and i seeing that in her i I say that because uh, man i can't i can't express it with the same glowing warmth that she did but that has been what i have found to be true as well throughout this journey that um that I wake up most mornings worn out, and there is a lingering sadness um, in life, even as I move forward and live and look forward to the future, and that there's, you know, single parenting and being a pastor and all those things that you carry, but that I continue to find in my Heavenly Father that He meets me and provides for my heart and soul what I need for this day. And He faithfully does that, and He sustains me, and in fact, that if anything, that has become more real to me in the last year than it ever was before. One of the, um, one of the realizations that I've had to confront, there's just this vivid realness to God's presence that I've experienced, is that um, if you asked me if I could go back and change the last year, the last five years, um, it's a tricky question to answer because, of course, if the question was, you know, could, you know, Elizabeth still be alive? Of course, the answer would be yes. But I don't know that I would want the pain and the, the loss, in a sense, to be stripped away because it has proven that to me, that God is enough. And that's the ultimate promise that I want to speak to you this morning, that, what, that God, as our shepherd, and our friend and our host and our lover is giving himself to us and offering himself to us. And that is a blessing that is greater than anything that we can imagine. And that is something that he continues to faithfully do. As we wrap things up, I thought about how to sum all of that up for you guys as you think about the next season and think about God's shepherding love. So, um... So I think most of you are aware of this, but um, I always wear long sleeves when I'm doing pastor work because I have lots of tattoos. <laughs> um, but back in seminary, I got this, which is the Greek for I am not the Christ, tattooed on my right arm. I am not the Christ, which is what John the Baptist says when people ask him. But I got it, <laughs> I got it tattooed because in many ways I think of that as, um, as a central truth first for how I think about ministry. It is so easy in ministry to fall into this idea of thinking either that you're Jesus in the sense that it's all about you, or that you're Jesus in the sense that you're supposed to save people, and that what they need is you. And neither of those things are true. But it's also a thing I think about as I get ready to leave you guys, and you think about the next season, because that is, in many ways, the hope that 
that, 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 that no pastor right, of the church is Jesus, and that while I am leaving, while, you know, my assistant pastorship here at Kish is ending for this season, that Jesus, the chief shepherd, the head pastor, is still very much here, and he's still very much showing you that love. The last five years have been a lot for me and our family, um, just as I reflected on them. This last week. Uh, I was a pastor before I came here at Kish at another church, but this was the first time that I was a lead pastor, making sure I don't say head pastor because of what I just said about Jesus. Um, this was a place where I feel like I had to figure out a lot of stuff and learned so much and where you all were gracious and encouraging and I'm sure patient at times with me as I did so. I was able to use and hone my gifts here. I preached something like 250 sermons and, um, you know, learned a lot of stuff about leadership and wrote two books and led adult ed classes and small groups and led youth group for a while before Jordan came on and visited so many of you and prayed. And some of that I think I did well, and some of that I probably did not as well, Um, but you've been so kind to me through all of that. Kish is the only church that my kids remember. Uh, Rebecca has vague memories of a time before that, but she was five when we moved here, and Silas was one. Um, And they've grown up with all of you, and been ministered to and cared for by many of you, and um, just blessed in so many ways, and love you guys deeply. We moved here um, a month after finding out that Elizabeth had cancer. And walked with you through all of that, through chemotherapies and through her terminal diagnosis and declining health. Um, And you loved her well. You were all so dear to her, and she appreciated you so much. Um, And perhaps the kindest thing that any of you did was that many of you chose to draw close to her and love her and support her, even though um, you knew that it would only add to your own grief. Um, And I know that you guys felt blessed by her, and she was so blessed by that. Um, And you've loved me and the kids well in the season after all of that. Thank you for all of that. And I have sought to love you all well through that process and lead you sacrificially as a shepherd. And I've done that imperfectly. I know plenty of you feel gratitude for that and feel uncertainty about the next season But your chief shepherd is not leaving. He is still here. Know that Jesus will still faithfully feed you in what is to come. He will lead you in good paths. Supply your true needs in himself. Know that Jesus will still faithfully protect you. And he will fight against the evils in the world. And he will fight to bring you back to himself when you wander. And he will continue to grow you nearer to himself know that Jesus will still faithfully bless you by giving you himself. Feast on him, drink deeply of him, and cling to him, because in him is something more than you can imagine. Do that, and I will seek to continue to do that where he leads me. And he will shepherd us both until the day that we sit down at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And regardless of what happens in this life, we will dwell there together as his bride. Let's pray. Father, you are the good shepherd who watches over us as your sheep. And I pray 
that you would just communicate your shepherding love to us. I pray that over Kitch, that you would continue to feed them, build them up. I pray that um, you would protect them and stand as their shield and defender and fight for them. I pray that they might know the blessedness of knowing you, being your bride, of being in fellowship with you. I pray that you would also go with and watch over us, um, me and the kids, as we move. You would lead all of us in your good and right paths. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.